Will you pray with me? God, we come before you this evening. God, I come before you on behalf of these people gathered here in this room. God, glorifying your name, exalting you with our voices, God. And so we come before you now, God, I come as we open your word asking for two things, Lord. First, God, I pray and ask that in this time of studying your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word tonight. Christ himself tells us in Luke 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so God, I'm asking during this time that you would give us your spirit. God, would you give us the spirit now to move in these words of mine tonight. Draw the spirit to move in the hearts and very lives of the people in this room. And God, as we contemplate your majesty, your brilliance, your glory, we desire that you would feed us tonight. And so God, secondly, I ask that you would feed us. God, I ask that your name would be glorified tonight. That your name would be magnified. That we would indeed see you as our mighty fortress. And that we would honor you and extol you and lift you up and glorify you as the God of our salvation from beginning to end. God, I, I plead and I ask that you would be pleased to do these things among us tonight for your sake. For the sake of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. In January of 1555, almost 40 years after Luther had nailed his debating points on the Wittenberg door, John Rogers, a Bible translator and a Protestant preacher, was being led to the stake. En route, he was asked once more by the sheriff to recant to recant from his teachings and his writings. He replied that he, what he had preached, he would seal with his own blood. Thou art a heretic, the sheriff replied. That shall be known at the day of judgment, said Rogers. Well, I will never pray for you, said the sheriff. But I will pray for you, replied Rogers. And as they walked Rogers did pray, and he sang hymns before he was soon met by his wife and 11 children, the youngest of which was still in her mother's arms. Even so, the sight of his family, soon to be a widow and orphans, did not cause him to waver. But he cheerfully and patiently went on his way to Smithfield, where he was burned to ashes in the presence of a great number of people. John Rogers was the first of some 290 Protestants of England executed during the reign of Queen Mary I, known to us today as Bloody Mary. 
It was the Cardinal Reginald Pole who had urged Mary I to harass the protesters of the Catholic Church in her realm. He reminded her that God had placed the sword of justice in her hand in order that those heretics who disobey the holy laws may be punished. And punished they were over and over again. Many ostracized, tortured, and many killed. Spilling their own blood for the love of Christ and the hope of seeing His church, His bride renewed and reformed and redeemed. Friends, this evening as we remember those reformers and protesters of old, we must ask ourselves this question. A question I pray that you wrestle with daily in your own lives, in your own heart and soul. And the question is this, for those who came before, who spilled their own blood, what was their motivation? To what end were they pursuing and chasing after? As we consider the stories of the saints of old, we have to openly and soberly agree that in our own time, in this place, here and now, we have faced nothing of the persecution or harassment that our forefathers and foremothers faced. And so the question, like the one I've just asked, about the motivation of our hearts is all the more important to ask of ourselves. Because here's what became apparent to the reformers. As they were pressed toward exile and even death, here's what became apparent to them. Where their true allegiance lied. Where their true motivations were placed. See it was no longer goods and kindred. Luther says let them go. It could not be prestige or payment. It would not be glory on this earth. And so they had to decide what was worth losing it all for. And friends, the answer to that question for the reformers should be like cold water upon our slumbering hearts. It was nothing less because it couldn't be. It was nothing short of the very glory of God. It was nothing less than the belief that God is of more infinite worth than anything that this world has to offer. And so we must ask ourselves, what is the motivation of our hearts? Why do you do what you do? Why do you follow the Lord? And if I may be so bold, because I believe I would be a fool to assume such, that everyone in this room is a Christian, why don't you follow the Lord? Why will you not follow Him? And as Christians, why do we put our trust in Him? Why should we grow in our love of Him? Why should we be more bold in our evangelism and missions? Be more generous with our money and possessions? Why? Why is He worth it? Why should we follow in the steps of the reformers in proclaiming that glory belongs to God and God alone? Tonight I want to try to make that argument. To make a case for why you should in a growing and ongoing way pursue God's glory alone above everything else in your life. Just to show you my cards from the outset. I want to show you that if you, 
If, if we seek to glorify God, it is the greatest thing that we can aim at in our lives and it will lead to our greatest joy and our greatest significance. I want to show you from just two short verses that we're going to look at this everlasting doctrine that it should be the ultimate aim of the Christian to glorify God through relying on His power alone in our lives. That it should be our ultimate aim, our true and everlasting joy, our daily resolve to plant our feet on the ground in the morning and march after the glory of God. I want us to see how that truth compelled men and women of the Reformation like John Rogers to walk all the way to the stake to be burned. And I believe it is that truth that will carry us along as, as Christians today. As we, as I hope you are praying for reformation, praying for renewal and revitalization, and, and dare I say revival here amongst our churches in the Roanoke Valley. Because this is what we see displayed in all of Scripture to use the five truths that came out of the Reformation that Sean spoke of. Scripture alone tells us the story of God's grace alone, given to us through faith alone, and the crucified and risen Christ alone, all of which come to us for God's glory alone. And that's the massive truth that I just want us to chew on tonight. From just two verses, just two. From Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. As you turn there, let me invite you to stand again out of honor and reverence for the reading of God's word. Friends, hear now God's very word to us from 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Tonight, there are just three things that I want us to see in this passage. Just three things for us to meditate on that Paul lays out for us. These are massive verses. These are, these are deep truths. And so just three things. One, what God will do. Two, how God will do it. And three, why God will do it. So what God will do, how God will do it, and why God will do it. Nothing complicated because I think this truth is, is that massive. We don't need some complicated thing because the, the reality of what's here, I think, is enough to overwhelm our hearts. So first, consider with me what Paul is praying for God to do, what God will do. Look back at the text. Paul begins by saying, to this end, we always pray for you. Now, even there, we should stop and think of our own prayers and consider the gravity of what he is saying in that simple statement. I mean, think about what he's saying. Think about what you're saying when you tell a friend, a loved one, that you, you will pray for them. What, what is Paul getting at? He's saying that, that he... That, that we, when we pray, are, are asking the very creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, to do what? To, to act according to His will. Consider the gravity of that, that. That God, that we are going to ask the God of all to act, to work, to move, to direct us. He sees fit within His will for the world. 
Friends, as we gather together to pray as local churches, as, as you gather together in, in small groups to pray throughout the week, as you, as you pray individually, do you think of your prayers in this way? It was said of Luther that he spent three hours every morning praying and once when asked if he was not too busy to spend three hours every morning praying, he replied, I'm so busy, how could I not spend three hours every morning praying? I wonder, just from the outset, just considering if we view prayer in this way. But let's look at what Paul is specifically asking God to do here for these saints. Look back at the text. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. See, when that, when that verse starts, I don't know if you're like me, but, but our selfish minds start, start thinking, start reeling. Okay, God, what, or Paul, what are you going to ask God to pray to, to strengthen us to do? Is it to evangelize more? Is it to, to preach more? Is it to pray more? What should we do? But look at what he says. I pray for you that who? Paul begins by putting us in our place. That whatever work is about to be done from beginning to end, that it will be done by God. I pray that God will do this work through you. He summarizes this at the end of verse 11 with a simple but freedom-bringing phrase, by His power. By His power. It is the overarching theme of these verses. That from beginning to end, Paul is calling on God to do a work. What a huge view of the sovereignty and ability of God that breaks down the pride in our own hearts and our own abilities. Everything that Paul is about to pray would be done by the power of God, by God himself. So what is it that Paul is asking God by his power to do? To make us worthy. Worthy of what? Of God's calling. What is this calling that he speaks of? It's actually a word that Paul uses quite often. He uses it to describe God's drawing forth from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. It's not a calling as if your vocation like you're a plumber or a lawyer. It's not that kind of calling. It is a bidding forth. It is a calling forth. It is what we call the effectual call of God. The call that when heard with the ears of faith draws a sure response of repentance and belief. Or as Paul reminds the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Also in Ephesians 1.18, Paul tells us that having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Or in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians in 1.12, he says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And as if we had any question about how God delivers this call. It doesn't show up as an invitation on your doorstep. How is it that God delivers this call from darkness into light? Well, going on down in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 and 14, Paul gets at precisely that. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He 
called you through the good news. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, do you hear where that call comes from? Do you hear it tonight? This is what was so revolutionary in the time of the Reformation. And honestly, this is what could reform so much of our lives and so many lives here in this region. Where do we hear the call? Listen to Paul again, this time more closely. Verse 14. To this he called you through the good news. Through the good news. This is why we must hold to sola scriptura. It is scripture alone that God, that is the Holy Spirit uses to give us the insight into the very heart of God to call sinners to himself. And to bring us back to our own passage, Paul is praying here that God will make us worthy of that gospel call. So that initial step of being made worthy of his kingdom, being a beneficiary of his grace, is seeing that you did not call yourself. You did not simply respond to a casual invitation, but through seeing your need for salvation. And when you see the infinite value of the gracious one who has awakened you to it, you respond. This call is a call to glory. Not glory in yourself, but glorying in God. That is the theology of this whole thing. Paul is praying that we be made worthy of this call. Worthy here means fitting, appropriate, proper. So how does that actually happen? Paul says that God in his infinite power will make us fit for the call. And he's going to do it in two ways. Through fulfilling our resolve for good and fulfilling our works of faith. Let's think about those two for just a minute. And we could talk all night on the clues that we see from this, just from 2 Thessalonians. Go read this letter this week, thinking about resolve and work, and see how Paul comes at this over and over again. But what I want to zero in is, is on those two nouns. What God will do. What will God do? He will give us resolve, and He will give us work. What is the, the, the power of God at work in our lives? His worthy making work does. It makes people who are resolved and who are working. It makes people who, who don't just float along on the tides of our culture, who just float along on popular theories, who don't just float along by, by what they hear, but who test it. They don't float along on their emotions or upon some whim, but they are resolved to move forward. We see here that God creates a people that are resolved, that are set, that desire above all else what is good, and God glorifying. You know I'm reminded of John Calvin here. Who was pushed out of Geneva. For three years. In the middle of a, a sermon series. He was preaching through the Psalms. And after Calvin finally returns. After being in exile for three years. Steps back into the pulpit. What does he do? He picks up with the very next Psalm. From where he left off three years earlier. That is the resolve that God works in our hearts. That man was resolved to preach God's word and to walk through scripture. That's what resolve is. And that's what God builds within his people. Friend, as, as we contemplate the glory of God tonight, we must ask ourselves, are there areas in your own life where you need to be strengthened by God in a resolve for him and for his glory? 
Not that he would take your problems away. Not that he would give you more time. Not that he would spare you heartache. But that he would make you resolve to live for his glory no matter what. And that's the second part of this worthy making that Paul asked God to do. That he would fulfill every work of faith. We find this little phrase here. I think we find what a great breakdown in our own hearts. Because we so often skim over that little word of faith. Sola fide. We find that our willingness to work will wither when we do not see our faith itself as a gift from God. When we see ourselves as somehow gathering our worthiness, that we somehow called ourselves forward, that we somehow mustered up the faith in our own hearts. And so whether it's in our parenting or our Bible reading or, or caring for a friend in need or, or even our singing in the local church, all of these ways where God's grace works itself out in our lives, we grow weary in the work. Serving the Lord is sometimes toil. It is a cross-bearing work to follow Jesus. It's simple, but it is hard. And we wither and we shy away from the work God gives us to do. Why? Because they stop being works of faith. And so we need what? We need God to give us faith to complete the works. Notice here that there is no debate over faith versus works. We see here that without faith, our works cannot and will not ever glorify God. Friends, another reason we find that God deserves glory alone is not just that he calls us to himself from death to life. But that he gives us the gift of faith to live a life serving him. Laying our pride down, laying our preferences down for him and his glory. Friend, do you see your faith as a gift from God? Do you see the faith of others as a gift from God? Or does your heart delight in your own intelligence, in your own strength, more than it delights in the God who through his power calls you to himself, gives you faith to follow him, destines you for works that require you to exercise a faith and a trust in him? Do you begin to see why God gets all the glory here? But if I were to leave the sermon there, I think it would feel really disconnected. Especially if you're here this evening and, and you don't consider yourself a Christian. Perhaps this is the first time you've heard of this good news and perhaps you wonder, but how? How can I get this call? What must I do to be called by God? By what means do I receive this gift of faith? And that's where Paul goes at the conclusion of verse 12. The second thing I want us to see is how God will do it. To get at this truth, and, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but in that first point we hit two of the, the solas, sola scriptura and sola fide, scripture alone and faith alone. And here we're about to hit two more. By jumping down to verse 12, we see how Paul knows God's will, instructs us in God's will in doing the worthy making. Look at that last phrase. Words mean things in the Bible. Paul says it will happen, what? According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, what a truth for us to meditate on tonight. So many of us come here this evening, I know, with things weighing on us, with 
sin struggles pressing upon us with hardships in our families, fear in our work, worry in our finances, and we wonder how. And initially, we wonder how is God going to work all of these things out. But if we sit on a problem long enough, if we mull over it long enough, we often get to the point, not so much as how's God going to work these things out, but we get to the point of, God, how are you going to get me through this? How are you going to sustain me in this? Because we find in our trials that the way out of them is through them. Very rare is there an escape hatch to get out of your trials. The only way out is to walk through it. And so the question that weighs on many of us is, God, how will you make it? How will you walk me through this? How? How will God create glory for himself in the midst of this? And Paul answers, the way God will fulfill the resolve for good and the work of faith even when the weight is upon us, it is according to the grace of God. Now that's a phrase we use a lot in Christian circles. Right? But can I attempt to make it fresh on our hearts tonight? Paul is asking that God would use His grace to make us into what He has called us to be. Think about that for a moment. Of all the things... That God in His manifold wisdom could use to whip us into shape. To, to make us a people who are holy and set apart. Of all the things He could use, Paul calls on God and God chooses to use and to display and to shower us with His grace. His beautiful, glorious, gentle grace. Giving to his people the salvation and glory that they do not deserve. Giving to his people the newness that as we were dead in our sins, we could never accomplish. This rolls into a whole conversation on how our justification in Christ fuels our sanctification to become like Christ. And we don't have time to get into all of that tonight. But hear this. God's grace is the means by which he intends to change you. And friends, Paul tees it up. What grace? Not just a general grace of God. Not just this common grace of God. No, this is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, here we find the very heartbeat of the Reformation. Not in devised plans of salvation by men. Not in a works righteousness. Not in some doctrine or some priest or some pope. But in a person, namely the God-man Jesus Christ. What is the truth that Paul is handing down to us in such a massive yet simple way? That the way that we are changed, the way that we are made worthy of our calling comes to us through seeing and savoring the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? That we are transformed when we behold the beauty and the glory of Jesus that when it goes deep into our hearts, we're changed. That's what grace does. I want to make this as practical as possible as we consider our struggles, both, both as individuals and as churches. The question Paul is answering is, how is God going to accomplish making us worthy of being called His people? How is He going to do it? And Paul is saying that He will do it through the grace of Jesus Christ. The good news that God saves undeserving sinners 
by putting forth Christ as an atonement for their sins. That's the truth boiled down, right? That we are made right before God and we are being made right before God only because Christ came and He purchased the people by giving His own blood as a payment for their sins. Friends, again, I would be a fool to assume that everyone sitting in here right now knows that truth deep down in their hearts and have been transformed, has been regenerated by it. And so I want you to hear it tonight. Salvation comes through God alone. Through the blood of Christ. This is the good news of the Christian faith. Or to phrase it this way, how can you truly change? How can you truly be transformed? Not just make yourself look nice. We're really good at that. But how can you have your very heart and soul transformed? It's only through a faith given to you by God. Placed in the crucified and resurrected Christ. It comes to you as a gift that you did not deserve. Earn or pursue. It is grace unmerited. Because if it were merited it would not be grace at all. Do you see that tonight? Do you see how it is that grace actually applied to our hearts that changes our lives? How can we stop loving the world so much? How can we actually long for God's glory along? What will it take to explode our hearts into everlasting joy and seeing God lifted high? Paul's answer, it must and can only come through the gospel. Through the grace of Jesus Christ applied to our hearts. We must see Him and savor Him and delight in Him to the point that all else fades away. We must see that this world is not worthy of our affection and will let us down always. We must see that the things of this world always overpromise and underdeliver. We must trade that lie for the truth that God is vastly more worthy of our heart's attachment. And so we come to the purpose of it all. We have seen what God will do, make us worthy of his calling. We have seen how God will do it by applying the grace given to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But friends, why? Why? That is where we have been building. Why does God intend to do all of the saving, all of the justifying, all of the sanctifying in a phrase so that he can get all of the glory? And that's precisely what we find in the middle, the core of these verses. The third thing we see is why God will do it. Look back at the beginning of verse 12, right there in the middle to find the answer. So that. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. Do you see how Paul is holding a particular aspect of God's glory before us this evening? And it is the one that I want to hold out for us as the chief end of our pursuits in this life. The point is exactly the same as what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.11. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Here Paul says let everyone fulfill his good resolves by the power of God so that the name of the Lord may be glorified. God gives the power. God gets the glory through Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the pinnacle of it all. 
This is where we've been building this evening. This is where our songs have been directed. This is where our prayers have been directed in glorifying God through Christ. To God's everlasting, all beautiful and captivating glory. Oh, that our churches would take up this truth. That we would labor in the gospel and gospel ministry to see Jesus Christ glorified among us. Oh, that we would lay down our own preferences, our own desires, our own hopes and dreams and visions. And seek God's and his glory. That we would give our money to missions and ministry for this end. That we would give our education times and our preaching to this end. That we would give our cooperation with, with one another as beautiful as this is, that, that we would continue doing it and caring for one another and other churches to this end. That we would give our prayer and our singing and our outreach to this end. Do you feel the weight of the purpose here? That's what's so scandalous to the watching world. That's why they don't understand it. because It's so upside down to them. They see just a man. Jesus is just an egomaniac. He's just arrogant and prideful telling people to worship him. But when we see, when we know and our hearts are awakened to who he truly is. That salvation belongs to him alone. That he is God in the flesh. That he humbled himself and came among us to redeem us and save us and ransom us for himself. We see why he deserves the glory alone. We see that God deserves the glory alone because He is worthy alone. What a truth to captivate our hearts. What a truth that actually changes us. I mean, it's so, so easy to get wrapped up in God's glory in this that we can actually miss that final phrase. That the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him. Hold up. You mean to tell me that there's glory held out for us too. How can those two things be together? How is it that we can stand up here and say. To God be glory alone. And yet the scriptures tell us that, that, that we are going to receive glory as well. It's because of where the glory lies. It lies in him. In Christ it is the phrase that Paul uses over and over in his letter. Paul never calls Christ's followers Christians. He signifies them by calling them those who are in Christ. The glory does not lie in our good resolve or the good works that we do, that we meditate on tonight. The only lasting glory that will outshine every glory that we will ever receive on this earth is the glory that comes from being in Christ. Why? Because that glory is forever. It is eternal. It is the inheritance for his work of purchasing sin sick sinners. Just like you and me. This is how God is glorified through Christ. And in Christ. Friends I don't know where each of you falls tonight. I'm sure there are children and teenagers. Among us who are just beginning to grasp. What living for the glory of God actually looks like. There are parents among us who are so sleep deprived and weary. That we just want to get through a day. Of glorifying God in our parenting. Without screaming at somebody. There are those of us with 
difficult jobs that we will have to go to tomorrow morning where we wonder, God, how in the world could you ever be glorified here? Those are those of us who are older in age who are just asking, God, how do I glorify you in my retirement? And the list could go on and on. And we all come from different places. We're facing different things. Our churches are facing different things. But this truth remains. It is the truth for us to take home tonight. If we are to find true joy in the Christian life. If we are to find true change and true growth. It will only come through this truth. When it comes through making the aim of our lives to show that we rely on God every step of the way. In our calling. In our justifying. In our sanctifying. And finally in our glorifying. God is worthy. Because salvation belongs to him alone do you know that does your heart believe it does your soul rejoice in it for the reformers it was the very truth that carried them along soli deo gloria is said to be the glue that holds all of the other solas together because it is the one that lasts for all eternity shown for us in God that he will be glorious for all eternity and as we bask in that glory, we share in it as well. Friends, we find here the truth. That it is God's glory that holds together the great hope of the Reformation. Then. And holds for the hope of Reformation now. And so the question remains for you. Will the glory of God alone be enough for us to give us every resolve for good and every work of faith? To make us worthy of the calling with which he has called us. Let us pray. Father we do pray. That you and you alone would be glorified in our lives in the lives of our churches. God that we would be a display of your glory here and now as we look forward to that time. And we will forevermore be glorified in your presence. Would you do the work that only you can do? Through Christ and for his name. Amen.